Well, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. I'm about to make a statement. I don't, I don't know exactly how to, how to make it without just saying it. I, I had kind of written up a way I could say it where, where I kind of ease into it and I, I give an explanation for why I'm saying it and all of that just seemed like a waste of time this morning. And uh, so I'm just going to say it without any just caveats or anything else. I just, I just need to start by saying something to you. And it's this. Two weeks ago on Sunday morning, I think I preached a really good sermon. I just, I just have to tell you that. Like, I, like, I'm not saying I hit a home run, but it was a solid double. And I think, listening back to it, if I, like a, ch- a couple of things, I could have rounded second and think headed to third. Like, I was, it, was, it was just a really, I'm just telling you, it was a good, solid solid sermon. And that's a big thing coming from me because one of the curses of being a preacher, I don't know if it's for every preacher, but it's certainly for this preacher, is going home every day feeling like you're, every Sunday like you're a loser and you totally blew it and everything you said was wrong and you messed up. And this is going to be the week they call you and say, Pastor Josh, five years of this, like it's enough and we're done. And like, that's just every Sunday afternoon. So every Sunday is like this battle of the mind. Uh, And so, but I got to tell you, like two weeks ago, I didn't really have that. I thought, yeah, I got to be honest, that was, that was really good. That was a good sermon. So I got done preaching. It was on John 20, 21. We were talking about expanding the presence of God and it was on missions and evangelism. And um, so I got done preaching. I walked right down and a lady came to me and said, oh, Pastor Josh. And I just wanted to say, I know. <laughs> like, I know, like, I feel it too. And, um, and she said, that was just so encouraging and so helpful. And I just needed that so much. And I think that was one of the best sermons you've ever preached. And, and I said, I, I agree. And um, then she said, I just really needed that word on peace. Now, I really craft my sermons well, and I, and I really know what I'm saying, and I just said nothing about peace in that sermon. <laughs> nothing. I never mentioned the word peace in that sermon. So then I go to Wednesday night dinner, and, and someone else comes to me and says, oh, Pastor Josh, Sunday. And I'm still feeling it. I'm like, I know. Like, I get it. So, I mean, but I still want you to talk. So let's talk about this a little bit. So she goes, I just needed that. Like this time of year, I just felt like that was exactly the right sermon for the day. And I'm so thankful for it. I mean, who doesn't need a word about peace? I didn't say anything about peace. I don't know where this is coming from. And then it happened again. So three people came up to me and just were so encouraging because they needed a word on peace. And then all of a sudden, like about Thursday of that week, I realized what happened. I had spent about 15 hours on my sermon that week. That's about what I do. So well-crafted, I mean, just thoughtful. And what they were referring to is about the 90 seconds I spent lighting the candle. This one right here, that peace candle. And I got to be honest with you, like I had kind of forgotten I was doing that. I was sitting on the front row and Ryan was singing and I thought, I need a peace scripture. Like I got to say something about peace. So in about 30 seconds, I thought of a scripture on peace and thought of something. I came up here, I lit the peace candle and that's what everybody remembered from that day. I told, I told Sky that story last week and he said, oh, you're not going to believe this. He said, I was preaching years ago at Prince and uh, he said, right when I got done, somebody came up to me and said, Sky, that statement you made. That may have changed my life. That was like one of the best things I've ever heard anyone say. And when they told him what it was, he realized it wasn't from his sermon. It was from Doug's prayer for the offering. (laughs) Which I will say, having heard Doug 
pray. I've never said anything in a sermon better than what Doug prays. So that made sense to me. Uh, but this is the life of the preacher, right? Right when you think you've really blessed someone, something blessed them that really had nothing to do uh, with any of your sermons. But I begin to think, like I thought about that, how that, those, those little moments on peace for some reason, that resonated with people. And so I have this Sunday. I just finished a series, and I'll begin a new one in January, and I've got something kind of special planned for Christmas Day. But I didn't have anything for today, and I thought, you know, it might be a good idea just to, just to talk about peace. And the truth is, there, there's a reason that peace is associated with Advent. There is a reason that peace is associated with Christmas. I mean, Isaiah 9, 6 says that there will one day be a king, and he will come, and he will establish a kingdom, and he will be the prince of peace. And it is a reference not only to the second coming of Christ when he comes and establishes a physical kingdom on earth, ruled and reigned by Christ and known for peace, but it is also referring to the reality of what happens when someone comes to know Jesus and the kingdom of God comes inside of their heart. There is then at that moment supposed to be the reign of peace. Like the prince of peace comes to dwell in us. Then in John 14, Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world knows peace, because Jesus is the only one that lived with perfect peace. Like Jesus existed in this perfect relationship with the Father. And so inside of him was this perfect, unending peace. In the midst of all that was going on around him, he had peace. And what he said before he left is this. My peace, that peace that I have, that supernatural peace from God, I want to give to you. Ephesians chapter 2 says that Jesus is our peace. Romans chapter 5 says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a reason that peace is associated with, with Christmas. If you think about that idea of peace, understanding it the way that it's supposed to be understood in the Hebrew Bible, it even makes more sense. Now, the Hebrew word for peace, you know, is, is shalom. Now, Hebrew scholars would tell us that the English word peace is really an inadequate word for this. This often happens in the Hebrew. Often in the Hebrew language, you have one word that is like full with meaning. And when the original audience would have heard it, they would have thought of all kinds of things. But we just don't have a word that matches up. So we pick the best word we can think of. But that best word is not good enough. And that's the way it is with shalom. Because when we think about peace, we often think about the absence of external conflict. So we think about let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. You know, war is over. And we just think about the need for everything externally to be at peace. The one thing we would want for Christmas is peace on earth. So we think of that kind of thing, the absence of conflict. And we may not just be talking about like Russia, Ukraine, distant conflict, but even like the people descending upon your home conflict. Like we think about all of the external conflict, but that's just a small part of shalom. The word shalom, write this down, means wholeness or completeness. It means that everything is exactly the way it should be. Shalom means all is well. Everything is taken care of. Shalom is what you get in Genesis 1 and 2 when God is walking perfectly with Adam and Eve in a perfect relationship with God in a world that is perfect before the brokenness of sin came in. 
There was shalom in Genesis 1 and 2. The word is not used there, but that is the idea. The idea is that you look at Genesis 1 and 2 and say, this is exactly the way the world is supposed to be. Everything is well. It's whole. It's complete. There's nothing missing. And then in Genesis 3, you get the presence of sin, which leads to brokenness. And then all of a sudden, nothing feels whole or complete. The image is, is kind of like the fact that our lives are complicated and they're filled with a hundred different things. And our mind is filled with all of these different things. But shalom would be that all of those things are coming together in a way in which you feel as if it's complete and, and done and, and right. This is the kind of peace that the Lord refers to. That There's one way that the word shalom is used in the Old Testament, and it's a perfect illustration. The word shalom is used in the Old Testament to refer to the building of a stone wall. And so imagine you need to build a stone wall, and so you have just this pile of stones, and piece by piece, you put a stone in, you put a stone in, and all of a sudden you look down and all of the stones are gone, and the wall is complete. There's no gap in the wall. Everything is done. Your work is done, and you can step back and look at it and say, it's complete, it's done, it's finished. There's safety there because it's whole and exactly like it should be. Now, when's the last time you felt shalom? All is well. This is exactly the way that life should be. I've gotten everything done. There's no pile of stones left over. Everything just feels right. That's the shalom of God. That's the peace of God that God wants us to have. I would say for most of us, that is a distant reality, if, even if, if it's ever been experienced. But what I, what I was thinking about this week is why is it that at Christmas that seems so much harder? And even after the, second, the first service, I came down and so many people mentioned to me, Pastor Josh, you're exactly right. I don't know why it is, but like at Christmas, it's just really hard to feel that sense of wholeness and completeness and that everything is well. So here, here's my theory as I've thought about that this week. Let's take two kind of dramatic extremes of Christmas situations. And then I think those two extremes show us why this is difficult. And then everything in between is kind of a little picture of that. So let's imagine on one side, you have this kind of idyllic Christmas. It's like Christmas as it's supposed to be. And so you've got your family all together and they generally like each other. And, and, and there's presents and there's the tree and there's things decorated and then people are coming over that you haven't seen in a while and you've got friends and you've got family and there's gifts and there's food and just like everything that's supposed to be there is there. But even in that situation, there is another side of that, which is, okay, in order for there to be presents, you have to purchase all of the presents. And so everyone has said, this is what they want. And so you got those things, but then all of a sudden, nine days before Christmas, one of your children says, well, dad, you know, the only thing I want for Christmas is this, but they've never said that before. And you can't get it now because it's too late. This is, by the way, I'm just making this up. It's all hypothetical. And so like there's that and there's the stress of making sure everybody has a, has a good Christmas. And then you, you think about the fact that you would want to sell your mom's house so she could move closer to you. Total, I'm just making this up. She can move closer to you. And then all of a sudden you realize all the family that's coming can't fit at mom's house, so they're staying with me. I mean, with you in this situation. And so now all these people are coming and you've got this week between Christmas and New Year's with nothing going on and you want to, just like Jesus did, sleep in heavenly peace, but you got a bunch of cousins and nephews and, and, and it, again... Like, I'm making this up. And then there's like, then you realize you got to be preparing the food and everybody's coming expecting to eat. 
Like this is idyllic and it's a lot for whoever would be like that, right? Okay, so that's, that's on one side. Not a lot of shalom there. But think about the far other extreme. The one who really doesn't want to have time off at Christmas because they don't want to stop and think about the pain. And there's just a lot of disappointment and hurt and um, there is this thought that, you know, by this time this year, I was supposed to have a spouse. And by this time this year, I was supposed to have a child. And maybe the prodigal's not coming home and you don't know if the prodigal's gonna come home. And maybe the prodigal is gonna come home and maybe that would be worse than the prodigal not coming home. And somehow at Christmas, all of these things stir up just the emotions and maybe the tension and the resentment and the bitterness that you've been hiding all year. And you could hide it because all the people weren't there, but they're all about to descend upon your house. And every bit of that is gonna be stirred up in you. And like maybe, maybe you're a single lady and, and it's really hard this time of year because, because you want somebody to spend that with. And this is not the way you envisioned Christmas. And so you've just got a night alone and you decide to spend it trying to make yourself feel better watching a Hallmark movie. And then you end up crying because you've never been kissed in the snow. And <laughs> all you want for Christmas is a guy to leave New York City and come and save your family's Christmas tree farm. Is that so much to ask? And so like now, in a hope of just having some mindless moments where you're just rejoicing in Christmas, you're super depressed and crying. Like one incredibly handsome guy saving the Christmas tree farm. Like, why is that a big deal? And so now it just gets worse. But in between all of that, isn't that true? There's just a thousand things and feelings and emotions and difficulties and pain and suffering. And there is just not a lot of shalom going on at Christmas. But there's a promise of shalom. And it's not just intended to be distant. It's not just intended to be future. There is a present promise of, of shalom. And what we mean is this. The promise of shalom is not the promise that every bit of the conflict and pain and disappointment and dysfunction around you would be fixed. The promise of shalom in the present is that in the midst of all of that, there is something dwelling inside of you that makes you feel as if everything's okay. Like just at peace with God and at peace with the world that God has placed you in when everything else around you is crazy. I want you to know there's a possibility to have perfect peace inside of your heart. And I get it from a little promise in Isaiah 26. It's a beautiful moment because in the previous couple of chapters, Isaiah has been prophesying about the coming of a, of a new city. And he is talking about how systematically, one by one, God is going to destroy every enemy that the Israelites have ever had. He's going to take care of Egypt and Assyria and Cush and all of them. Like, he's just going to destroy every enemy. And then he's going to destroy all of that. And then he's going to rebuild a new city, pointing to the new Jerusalem. And in that city, it will be marked by joy and peace and security. And so Isaiah has been writing about God's ultimate victory and really pointing to the second coming of Jesus Christ when there will, for the first time, be full peace on earth. Because the prince of peace has fully established his kingdom. And then in light of a couple of chapters in which he keeps saying in that day, in that day, in that day, pointing forward, Isaiah begins to sing. He begins to sing. And his song is like a prayer. And by the way, there's just something there, like there's a whole sermon right there that if you're missing a song in your heart, 
Like if you hear all the music, but you don't have a song in your heart. The way you get a song in your heart is from right here. Isaiah wasn't planning on singing. He was just thinking about the glory that is to come and the glory of Christ and all that Christ has done. And the more he fills his mind with this truth and the more he thinks about what Jesus is gonna do, he just has a song in his heart. And so he begins to sing and it is a song to the Lord. And in this song, you both have a, a picture of the future because it begins with those familiar words he's used a lot in the previous chapters, in that day but he kind of moves back and forth from that day till today. And this is like how prophecy works. Prophecy works by saying that's gonna happen in the future, but that has implications for today. And you'll notice as I read, there's both this future hope and this present desire in reality. And so listen to Isaiah 26. It says, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nations that keep faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height and the lofty city. He lays it low and he lays it low to the ground. He cast it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance or your name and renown are the desires of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of the uprightness, he deals corruptly, and he does not see the majesty of the Lord. O oh Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. O oh Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. O oh Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead, and they will not live they are shades, they will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all the remembrance of them. But you have increased the nations, O Lord. You have increased the nations. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. Now that, like all prophecy, can be confusing because it is partially pointing to a lot of things that will happen in the future. But did you notice how often, while he's talking about something happening later, he says, oh Lord, would you do this for me now? Oh Lord, I need this now. Oh Lord, in the night, tonight, I am thinking about you. And one of the most precious parts of this chapter is what it says in verse three. When he is talking about what he needs right now, when he says this, Oh Lord, you, he's praying, he's singing to the Lord. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That is a precious word of a present reality and a promise that God wants us to have his perfect peace. So what we're gonna do in the next few moments is exactly what you should do with a verse like this. And not only do I pray that our hearts would be encouraged by the truth of this verse, I wanna show you what to do with a verse like this. And what I mean is oftentimes you're reading your Bible and you come to one verse and you think to yourself, that verse is incredible. And I think that verse has a lot to say to me. And I think it could really be meaningful to me. What do you do? What you do is you stop and you just marinate in that verse for a while. 
You just soak in that verse. You just sit there and you be quiet and you say it over and over and you think of every single word and you think of it slowly and you let every single word minister to your heart. That's what you do with a verse like that. When God begins to minister to your heart in a verse, you don't go quickly. You just slow down and let it take your heart. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I want you to see three truths about perfect peace from the words of this verse. I'm going to take the verse. We're going to put it up there. We're just going to leave it up there the whole time. So you'll see how we're just walking through it. The first thing I want you to see is this. There is a person of peace. There is a person of perfect peace. Get that down. There is a person of peace. What is the first word of this verse? Okay, let me just stop here for a minute. This is going to be a really long Sunday morning sermon. If you don't engage with me just a little bit, we got the, we got the words right there. I'm not, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not going to have you say you, and I'm going to go, well, actually, in Hebrew. No, I'm not doing that. Like, right there, what is the first word of the verse? Say it. Yeah. What is the last word of the verse? Yeah. What's right in the middle of the verse? Yeah. You. That's right. So remember, he's praying. He's singing a song to the Lord. And what he's saying is, Lord, you, you, Lord, keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on, on you because he trusts in you, which means that right here we know that the source of this peace has to be something that comes only from the Lord. We also know right here that if somehow, listen, every single chaotic part of your life was fixed, imagine this, and every crazy relative was, was healed, and every present was bought and wrapped and meal prepared and all of the resentment and bitterness was gone and every dream and hope you've ever had, like in a moment, everything was taken care of, but you did not have the Lord inside, you would not have peace. You got that? Peace does not come by the fixing of all of the externals. And this is why we've got to get the idea of shalom. Because if God were to take care of everything that worries you, but you did not have him, you would have no peace. And so Isaiah knows this. He's saying, you, Lord, you are the one who gives the peace. When our mind is stayed on you, when we trust in you. I just begin to think, well, well, what is the you there? Well, certainly it's the Lord, but I think it's more than that. Because throughout the scripture, all three persons of the Trinity give peace. All three persons of the Trinity. God the Father gives peace. It's certain that Isaiah would have known about Judges chapter 6 when, when Gideon, uh, one of my favorite Old Testament characters in an incredible moment, called by God to lead the people of God, to take down false altars, and to really just an incredible moment. And Gideon, in the midst of all that God was doing in his life, stops and he makes an altar. And when he makes that altar, he worships Yahweh Shalom. It's the only place that's used in the Old Testament, right there with Gideon. Yahweh Shalom, you are the God of peace. Now, Isaiah knew about Gideon. And so certainly when he was thinking about the fact that God is the only one that could keep us in peace, he was thinking about Yahweh Shalom, the God who is peace, the God who has peace, the only God who knows peace. But Isaiah also knew about Jesus. You say, well, this is a lot of pages till Jesus. I know, but if you were to go back to Isaiah 9, it is Isaiah that prophesies that one day a king will come and he will be the prince of peace. Yeah. So Isaiah knew that. Isaiah knew that Jesus would be the prince of peace and he, he looked forward to the day in which the priest of peace would come. And it is in John 14, in which Jesus says, my peace I give to you. 
It is, as I said, in Ephesians chapter 2, where you see that Jesus is our peace. In Romans 5, that there is no peace with God, but through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so certainly, God the Father has peace, and God the Son brings peace. But God the Spirit is also the source of peace. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Love, joy, and peace. And so all of a sudden, we know that part of the way in which peace becomes a reality to us, it is as a work of the Holy Spirit of God coming inside of us internally. It is not an external thing. It is something that God works inside of us. Romans 14, 17 says this, For the kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the righteousness and joy and peace of God present in your life because you have the Holy Spirit. And you got to know that you have to start there. If there is any longing for peace, any desire for peace, you cannot first let your mind go to all the things externally that need to be fixed. You have to first go to this, that you need God. You have no hope of peace without God praying this morning over this service and this happened to me a few weeks ago but I really believe this is from the Lord I'm confident there's someone in the room this morning that is running from God in the hopes that you might find a way from God some peace for your soul and I want to assure you this morning that the only thing you will find is greater brokenness and less peace The only peace is found in running to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the only access you have to God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit, the three persons who alone have perfect peace, is if you come into a submissive relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. So if you're running towards peace, you have to run towards Jesus Christ. And the reason this is true is because Ephesians chapter 2, I want to read a few verses Turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Ephesians 2. I just, I need you to see why peace has to be an internal work of God first. It tells us that in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. It says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And essentially what he's saying there is all of you who don't know the Lord... (laughs) He says, remember that you were at that time before Christ, listen to this, separated from Christ. Can you have peace when you're separated from Christ? No, let me try that again. Can you have peace when you're separated from Christ? No. You were also alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. If you're strangers to the promises of God, can you have peace with God? No. Having no hope, And without God in the world. If you're without God, can you have peace? No. But now. Verse 13. In Christ Jesus, who you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall. I want you to hear this word, which is used twice. The dividing wall of hostility. Do you know what was present before you came to Christ between you and God? Hostility. You were born at war with God. Can you be at peace when you're at war with God? No. 
Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile, he might make the relationship right to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, and what is the message Jesus preached? He preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, if you know Christ, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." And so Christ died to end the hostility that you had with God, thereby making peace. So Jesus is our peace. And in so doing, the very last verse, verse 22, he gives you the Holy Spirit by which you might have peace. So think about how this works. Jesus dies to bring you to God and then fills you with his spirit. Now you have a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, all whom have peace. But if you have not humbled yourself before God, if you have not submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ, if you have not asked Jesus to save you, you will never know peace because Jesus is the only way to get to it. It is an internal work of God that he works in our heart through Jesus Christ. And without it, there is nothing left but hostility. This is why Romans 5.1 says, since we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And once we have peace with God, we can know the peace of God. But here's the second one. There's the person of peace. And there's also, write this down, the promise of peace. There is the person of peace and the promise of peace. And so it says you, so this is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We come to God through Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. Relationship with God the Father. Brothers with Christ, as Ephesians 2 says. And the Holy Spirit dwelling in us all the way to peace. But then it's the next word. It says you. What's the next word? You keep. That's a promise. Some versions say you will keep. The Hebrew doesn't use the word will, but it's implied there. This is something the Lord will do. God will do this. You will keep him in perfect peace. Now listen to what that word keep means. The word keep is a word to refer to a watchman or someone who guards something, someone who protects something, someone who keeps something from being besieged. Now, this is, this is the reason that, that that picture is important, okay? Here it is. Because there are two battlegrounds in which you fight for peace. You've got to get this. So here's what we think. The battleground for peace is over there with them. The battleground for peace is in that situation or in that work situation or family. So we're always fighting this battle externally because we want peace. But that is not the battleground for peace. There are two battlegrounds in which every bit of peace is fought for. Here they are. It's the battleground of your mind and the battleground of your heart. That is the battleground for peace. Every battle for peace is right here and right here, not out there. It's the mind and it's the heart. And so what he's saying there is these battlegrounds for peace, these internal battle that I have with my mind, my mind continuing to control me and, and bring me anxiety and my heart that is not at peace. What he's saying is there is this supernatural 
watchman, this wall that is being built around your mind and built around your heart. And it exists for two things, to keep peace in and chaos out. And there will always be the chaos around you, but it is possible, listen, it is possible to have your mind and your heart at peace. Why? Because there is a watchman. You keep him in perfect peace. I've told you this before, that uh, I was really scared as a kid. I had a lot of fear as a kid. I I had a very difficult time going to sleep. And uh, some of you kids may experience this and know what this is like, but I was always scared as a kid. I didn't want the lights to go off. And I was afraid that something was going to come from under my bed or outside or whatever. I was just, it was a big deal. I was really scared as a kid. And there's a lot of verses I remember that God taught me in those days. And let me just say this to you. If, If you're a kid and you're struggling with fear and you persevere through this, God will use this Uh, to build something in your life that's really good. And maybe someday you'll stand right here and share it with everybody else like I'm doing. But one of the little kind of word pictures that my mom would give me was really from Psalm 125, where it says, as the Lord surrounds, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. And and my mom used to to encourage me by the fact that, that I am surrounded like the walls of a fort. That's Psalm 125. I can't tell you how many times I went to bed at night as a kid and I would just picture myself right here, terrified, but I'm surrounded by the walls of a fort and no one under my bed or outside my window or outside the, no one can get to me. Why? Because I'm surrounded by the walls of a fort. I fell asleep so many nights feeling as if I was just safe because I was surrounded. And, and I know for many of you that seems distant and, and it's been a long time since you've been scared at night. But listen, you still have fears and you still have anxieties. And the reality is God still wants to surround your mind and your heart with him. It is still a really helpful thing to think about our mind and our heart surrounded by these walls of a fort. And it says that what God wants to do is he wants to surround our mind and surround our heart with, look at what it says, those two words, with, say with me, perfect peace. You know what that is in the Hebrew? Shalom, shalom. Twice, it's twice, it really is. And it's totally unnecessary. The only reason it's done is because in the Hebrew, the way you develop intensity is through repetition. This is how the Hebrew language works. And so just to say the intensity of the kind of peace that God wants to give, he repeats it twice. So what he's saying is like this idea, God wants to give you shalom, wholeness and completeness, but he wants you to give complete wholeness, whole completeness. Like he wants to take this, this sense of wholeness and all as well. And then he wants you to have all of that. Shalom, shalom, completeness and wholeness and completeness and wholeness that you might be whole and complete in your shalom. What he says is that God wants to do is he wants to take your heart and your mind and he wants it to have shalom, shalom, this perfect peace. And it is referring to this kind of state of being, this this present ongoing action in which my mind is at peace and my heart is at peace. Let me give you some verses to write down to meditate on later. Philippians 4, 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will, here it is, does this sound familiar? Will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, what does it do? It guards your your mind and your heart in Christ Jesus. John 14, 7, John 14, 27. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives peace. So what does it say? Let not your heart be troubled. So I'm gonna give you my peace, which will surround you like a fort so your heart will not be troubled. 
And then Psalm 46, write that down. I'm not going to read it, but Psalm 46 paints this picture of the nations raging and the kingdoms tottering. It gives this picture of earthquakes and natural disasters and war. And in the midst of all the natural disasters and the war and the craziness, it says, there is a stream that makes glad the city of God. It is a reference to the presence of God flowing into your heart in the midst of the chaos that brings peace. Because there is this promise of peace, not the absence of all the chaos, but the presence of a heart and a mind guarded by peace. But the final thing I want you to see is this. There is a person of peace, there is a promise of peace, and there is a pathway to peace. Write that down. There is a pathway to peace. We do have a role to play, and the role is seen in these words. You keep So you, Lord, you, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, you keep, you watch over our heart and our mind. You keep him, who's him? Well, the one whose mind is stayed on you. And so, Lord, you keep in perfect peace. Shalom, shalom. Which one? The mind who stayed on you. And so that's our role. Our role is to keep our mind stayed on the Lord. That word stayed there uh, means to lean on something. It means to rest on something. It really gives the vision of laying down on something like you were lay on your bed. So if you lay on your bed, you're not holding yourself up. You're not exerting any energy to lay on your bed. Every bit of your weight is just laying on the bed and the bed is holding you up. You expend no energy there when you're completely laying down and you're relaxed and you're breathing. You're just laying there. That's what it means by a mind stayed, a mind laid on the Lord, uh, a mind resting upon the Lord, a mind that is not holding itself up, a mind that is not figuring everything out, but a mind that has chosen to lay down and rest upon the Lord. It says the mind who stayed on the Lord, the mind who lays down on the Lord, the mind who rests on the Lord, that is the mind of the one who gets the perfect peace that comes from the Lord. And that is a role that we play. Now, I, I, I don't know if this is true, but the whole time I'm studying this text this week, I cannot stop but think that the old hymn we used to sing has to come from this verse where it says, what a fellowship and what a joy divine leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace of mind leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread and what have I to fear leaning on the everlasting arms? I have blessed peace with my Lord so dear, leaning on the everlasting arms. And so, Lord, you, by the power of your spirit, through your son, you you watch over my mind and heart, and you give me perfect peace as my mind is stayed on you. Why? Because, why can my mind be stayed on you and be, because, because I trust in you. Because I trust in you, because I know that you love me, and I know your promises, and I know your providence, And I know your sovereignty and I know that everything in around me is coming through you and nothing goes around you. And if somehow in this fortress, there's something that comes at me, I know that everything goes through the one who has built the fortress and that is you. And so there is this confidence in his love and in his plans and his provision and his sovereignty. And as I rest upon the Lord, because I trust in him, then there is the presence of perfect peace. My family doesn't know this yet, but the verse that the Lord has given me for them uh, next year is Proverbs 3, 5, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And listen to this, does this sound familiar? And lean not. It's the same word. And lean not. 
Leaning on my own understanding is, Lord, I can't figure that out. And I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. That's leaning on your understanding. So the reason you can't go to sleep at night because you're leaning on your own understanding. The, the option that you have is to just lay upon the Lord and allow him to take every bit of the weight. A mind that is resting, a heart that is trusting gives perfect peace. Let me close with this last personal word. Um, I said to the first service, I don't know this morning if I'm preaching to you or me, maybe to both. About two months ago, I just went through a couple of weeks where I was just overwhelmed with just lots of stuff and, and feeling a lot of weight and a lot of heaviness. Um, and I was, I was getting no rest. And I, I got up one morning, I was reading the Bible and I was reading Isaiah and I came to Isaiah 7.4. Isaiah 7.4, write that down. Here's what it says. It says, be careful, which is the Deuteronomy, Old Testament, Pentateuch, be careful, which means follow the Lord. Be careful kind of just means walk with the Lord. Be careful, listen, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Be quiet, be careful, and do not fear. If like what the Lord is saying to me is, Josh, if you, if you would just stop for a minute and not talk, you would just sit here and you would walk with me then I'll give you perfect peace. But you have to stop and you've got to be quiet and you've got to keep persevering and walking with me and I will give you perfect peace. And I went every day for weeks just saying, all right, be careful, be quiet. Be careful, be quiet. When's the last time you've done that? When's the last time you're just quiet? Like you just got up a little earlier, you stayed up a little later and you just took everything and you just, you didn't even think about it. You just sat before the Lord and said, Lord, I need your perfect peace. Because our role is to do that. Our role is to rest. Our role is to trust. And his role then is to keep you in perfect peace as your mind is stayed on him. So let's say it a couple of times together. Say it with me. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You got to do better than that. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. One more time. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's good news. Amen. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.